Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to experience our second interview with Gail Hasen on the topic of Mongolian shamanism. This is the second of three interviews on that topic. In the final interview, we'll talk about her actual initiation as a Mongolian shaman. Gail is the host of the small, medium, at-large podcast. She also received a, an honorary doctoral degree from the Mongolian Academy of Sciences for her work with Mongolian shamans. Gail lives in Sebastopol, California. I'm going to switch over to the internet video in a moment, but I want to encourage you to view the previous interview on Mongolian shamanism and the other two previous interviews with Gail even before that. She is a remarkable woman, and I'm linking to the earlier interviews so that if you have a, a computer, you can link to them. For those of you with an iPhone, I don't think these links work. But uh, in any case, you'll get so much more out of this interview with Gail if you watch the earlier interviews. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gail. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. This is our fourth interview. Well, it's really a pleasure to share it with you because you're the most comfortable interviewer for a person to share their deep so stories with. So I feel just it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, let's begin by talking about the clothing that you're wearing, and especially what it looks at the moment like a medallion. I know it's more, much more than that. Is, yes, can you see the reflection, how it looks like a mirror? I can see myself in it, in fact. <laughs> yes. Well, this is, uh, this is, uh, was actually made for me in Mongolia at a special place you go to where these are made by the, I don't know if it's called a blacksmith, I'm not sure what, but who works with metal. And so this was ordered for me on one day and we went there quite a few days later to pick it up. And it's the um, mirror that the shamans wear because it's a tool that's used in shamanic uh, work. Uh, the interesting thing I find about this is that the Weechol also use a mirror in shamanic work. This though is very ancient. This particular metal, this brass, was also worn by all of the soldiers in the Mongolian army during the times of Genghis Khan. So that's how long this mirror has been in use. It's considered a few different things. It's also considered a protection. It's considered a place for the shaman to get information. But what it's also done is, is used for is that there were shamans I saw there that when you saw the mirror, you saw all kind of dents and marks in the mirrors. And those were actually what is used to reflect like negative arrows or negative energy that's shooting at the shaman. That mirror will then show that it has been damaged or dented and protected that shaman from 
evil or negative energy coming towards him. So it's a very important tool. And I have, I think I wear three of them when I wear my full clothing, but we'll see that all on the next show. But the shaman belt also is made with these all around the belt. So this is a very important piece of shamanic clothing or items that are used in Mongolia. And the fact that it's very ancient. I do know that uh, one of the techniques that one can find in esoteric books about psychic self-defense is the idea of mirroring back whatever energies are being directed at you that might be of a negative nature. Then I heard somebody say to me, yeah, but then you're just sending somebody else's negative energy back to them. Why not transform it and send love back to those people who are sending you negative energy? Very, very good thought. I'm not sure what the Mongolian shaman method is when they do this. Maybe they do use that form. I have no idea. I will be happy to ask Dr. Bhatt about that, and we can find out for our next show. Well, where we left off with our previous interview was back in 2006, you attended your first conference in Mongolia on shamanism. You had some wonderful experiences there and some that were also a bit frightening. But my understanding is that after you returned to the United States, you received several more visits from Mongolian shamans who were coming to California for Ruth Inga Heinz's shamanism conference. Exactly. And the fact is that some of the shamans that I saw on my return in 2011 were shamans who stayed here in my home and also a very um, well-known, very, very well-known, sh not shaman, because she's considered a healer, though healing is part of shamanism. She was uh, Pujay. She had come also. And I realized she came here in 2008, and I saw her again on that 2011 trip. So it had been really three years since I'd seen her. The um, shamans who had come then, when she had come with them, it was during the time that my father was dying. And I didn't attend much of the conference. I just did my job of getting the Mongolians there. And then I was by my dad's bedside most of that conference. So she came back and she stayed at my home. And I have to share this story because even though it's not necessarily shamanistic, it feels like it's the reasoning of the, it shows the depth and closeness that I feel with these people of this country, of Mongolia. You know, some people talk about past lives or this or that. There's something that Mongolia and I are very well connected. And when she came and my dad was um, in a, a little guest house here on my property, and she would come and treat him every day, sometimes twice a day, and it was singing. She would sing to him, different singing, and she would touch his body and do energy work to heal on his body. And one evening when we had gone, taken her out to dinner, instead of eating the meal she had ordered, I noticed she put it in a plastic bag in her purse. And later when we got back to my house, she took the two lamb, um, I don't know if they call it a chop, two lamb chops that were kind of flat, and she pressed them against my dad's feet. And she held them there for very long periods of time. 
And I asked what this was about, and it was a form of extraction of taking the poisons out of the body and it going into the meat of the lamb, the lamb meat. And it specifically had to be lamb meat. It couldn't be beef or something else. You wanted this lamb. And then I'm not sure if we buried it or what exactly we did, but there was some way of disposing it after. She treated my dad, and my dad was not someone who would go to an oncologist or any of these things for his cancer. He managed it uh, on his own and lived a better, healthier life than someone who receives radiation and chemotherapy. So for the next three years, he'd done a terrific job, but now we were at the end. And um, she brought him, it wasn't like she was going to heal his cancer and he was going to stop jumping up and coming back to life. But what she did was give him sort of an easement and like a cleansing and clarity around his whole being. And he said to me, whatever she's doing to me, he said, I don't know. I just feel good when she does it. And it was a very, you know, these healers, when they do these things, they don't ask for money or anything in exchange. I didn't even specifically say, would you heal my father? I had no idea that she was a renowned healer in Mongolia, that she has a huge center. I didn't find out any of these things until 2011. So what I experienced was just this tender, loving person who wanted to do whatever she could to help others around her that were sick. So it wasn't only my dad that she was drawn to work on. We had a meeting with Michael Harner. I don't know if your audience knows who Michael Harner is. He has passed on in the last couple of years, but he was considered to be the man who really brought shamanism to America with his first book, The Way of the Shaman. A very lovely man, and we got to know each other because of Ruth Inga Hines' conference and because Mongolians had been in correspondence with him for many years. So they already had a connection, but had never actually physically met each other. Bat Bayar and Michael Harner had been writing back and forth to each other for many years, and that's why we went to meet Michael Harner. I had taken a Michael Harner shamanic class many, many years before I ever met him, and I loved the class. It was teaching you about going to the lower worlds and meeting your power animals and all these things. And it was this lovely, you know, I was just thinking of it as a, like a day retreat kind of a thing. It wasn't like I was going to become a shaman or, I mean, that was what I was thinking anyway at the time. And um, so they asked me, could we please go see him? We have his address and his home. So I'm thinking, gee, this is a famous guy that the Mongolians are taking me to meet. (laughs) not me taking them. And when I brought Poojay in and we went to their offices, she could tell he was not well. And she said, let me do a healing right here in the office right now, which she proceeded to do immediately. And Michael Harner, who was in his last, you know, I don't know if it was a year from then that he passed on. I don't remember. But um, no, it must have been a couple of years. He had a couple good years after that. He had such a wonderful healing with her that he asked me, could we please bring her back one more time before we leave? she leaves the country? So we came back at another time and we went to his home. I mean, I would have never met Michael Harner or been to his home, but the Mongolians kept bringing me to there. So that's where I got to meet him. And we became friends and he became a, a just a wonderful man to know in your life. So she touched him very deeply because these men felt better 
after they receive this healing from Pujay. And so I think that's an important thing for, you know, people to know that sometimes someone comes out of nowhere and offers you a healing and maybe you should accept because you have no idea what that might do for you. Well, I think it will give our viewers a real sense of how the psychic uh, phenomena and the shamanic phenomena are integrated into Mongolian culture. If you say a few words about the healing center that Pujay had in uh, Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia, when you visited uh, on your second trip there in 2011. In 2011, uh when I visited uh, Pujay, I had no idea who this woman was when she was at my house in 2008. I just was told she's like a healer. And, you know, I just, I just loved her. So I didn't, I loved her energy and being around her. But I had no idea what a hardworking woman this was and that her life is dedicated to healing. This is not something she does on the weekends. This is something she's doing in a huge center in the middle of downtown Ulaanbaatar, and it's three stories high building. When I walked into the building to meet her, to meet with her, because she had sent a driver, I think her husband came and picked us up. I came in and the first thing I saw on the wall was this huge, all made out of metal. I didn't know you could do that with photographs, but it was a huge, like three foot or by three foot by five foot mural collage of her trip through the United States and other places. And there she was with the Dalai Lama. And there she was with, you know, all these different known famous people. And then there she was with Gail. So I couldn't believe I made the wall, you know. <laughs> but there I was. And there I'm sure I'm still hanging. And uh, it's her and I together. I think we're at the Golden Gate Bridge or somewhere where I'm taking them. And I was just so touched to walk into a place in Mongolia and see my face on the wall, you know. So we, she takes us upstairs. It was just me and my husband. Uh, by the way, I do want to mention that this trip, I took my family, two of my children with us, which we can talk about after. But my husband, David, went with me to her healing center. My children stayed back with Batbayar's children because they wanted to do young people things. And each floor, she had something different. Like one floor had all the offices and things that were going on. Then the other floor had, I don't know what Curlian, I think that's how you say it, Curlian photography. She had huge poster-sized Curlian photography around this entire room showing what the person, maybe you can tell the, visit, the, the viewers what the Curlian photography means, but what she did was show photos of before and after she would work on patients. And that was all over the walls in giant poster size color things. Can you explain for a minute what that is, the Curlian photography? You know, I haven't seen exactly her setup, and there are many different setups for uh, Curlian photography. Sometimes it's called high voltage photography. And when you run a very high voltage, low amperage electrical current, you get sort of uh, electrical plasma discharge around the body. It can be photographed and people often use it uh, as a diagnostic tool. So I think that's probably what she was trying to show in these photos was how when they came in, they had this type of 
you know, electrical charges and colors coming out in the photos. And then when you saw the healing photos, you could see a complete difference in, so it was sort of like factually showing you her energetic work. And so that was all around. And then we went up to the healing room section, which also was huge. By the way, I'm talking about a building, not a little tiny room. So her upstairs third floor, that entire floor, there were chairs all around the edges of the room. And when she's doing healing and her hours or whatever it is she does that, people will just, they don't make appointments. They just line and they sit in the chairs and they wait till their turn is next. And then she has you sit in a chair or whatever she decides is where you need to be for this. So on the day that we came was not the day where she was overrun with a zillion people because then she wouldn't have been able to go with us. This was a day which I think is important to share with people that Mongolian government respects shamans and and healers. They honor them. Her center gets sponsored by certain different government things that donate money to her uh, center so that she can keep this going. She had the governor of one of the provinces there. And when we met him and he meets my husband and, you know, he's dressed very state, like, you know, he's some kind of official when you come in and you see him standing there very proudly and he has his medals on and his gold, beautiful uh, clothing. And he was there, I think she was working on his lungs or his kidneys. I'm not exactly sure, but that was when I got to hear stories of her doing healing of cancers on uh, government uh, officials. And so then they end up honoring her. Like when she does her work, she wears a complete gold crown, all golds on her head that had been given to her by some official that was so pleased by the results of the work she had done. She had a special, very, very old antique carved chair. I don't know what the history of it was, but it was a very important chair that was given to her. Her energy is very calm and even. It's not like she was, she's like up and down. Oh, I'm doing here. You know, she always seemed to be a very calm, stable person. So we met with the official and the first thing that's done when you do this is her and my husband had to do snuff together. So you put the snuff up your nose and it's like, it's a, it's a way of a greeting. It's not given to a woman. It's only given from man to man. And uh, he told us from his own mouth about the powerful work she had done on him. And he was returning for her to continue the healing he needed for whatever else his other ailments were. I thought that was a very amazing thing that they're, you know, that to, to hear a government person say these things. So she has anywhere from a very poor person, maybe who has very little money coming there to some high government official. And that was her healing center there. But then when we were in the conference, which we'll talk about later, which was in a um, national uh, park. So we're in beautiful mountain and rocks and trees and she had a center there also where the one in downtown, that was only where you came in that day, that moment you had healing. The one, oh, and one other thing I thought was fabulous in seeing her center was that there on the walls were the photos of uh, Dr. Masuro Emoto's water crystals. And she had huge posters like that all over. And I'm looking at it and I'm going to, and I'm trying to say between the, you know, we don't have a really good English translator, but I'm trying to express to her that 
it was the Institute of Noetic Sciences and Dr. Dean Radin, with my assisting him, who wrote the first published paper on the effects of distant water crystals and whether they really were actually, this was a scientific double-blind experiment, and it was able to show that something was indefinitely happening between the water that was prayed to and water that was just not prayed to or left somewhere on a desk. So, in fact, I was in charge of that. I was the one who mailed all the water to Dr. Masaru Emoto's lab and la la la. And uh, so to be in Mongolia and see his things up there and try to express that, even though our English really wasn't enough, the translator couldn't really quite get it. There was some sort of comfort or feeling like, oh, we're really connected here. She's, she's looking at his crystals just like we are in Petaluma. So there was a kind of bond feeling with that. So she also had this other place next to the national park where we were having the big shaman conference. And she, it's where she keeps people, where they come and they stay there for months at a time. And they are either dying of cancer. They're very, very sick. Uh, it's not the kind where they just come into her place and get one thing. There they're kept and cared for where they do um, special diet they're, the food is all prepared in this lovely kitchen. They have a beautiful, small little room, but everything is very peaceful and is really, you can feel, is you're not in the middle of a downtown. You're in a real place to heal. And David and I both spoke to two people there that told us these amazing stories. At, at first, when we, after we came out, we wondered, like, was this a setup, you know? <laughs> were these two people posted here to tell us this? But we were hearing right from their mouths this one person, this one woman said, I've been a diabetic for many, many years. I take four shots of insulin a day. I came and I stayed here with her and my whole diet and life and everything changed. I'm off all medications. I can eat sugar. I can eat anything I want. And my blood sugar does not raise. I have been completely healed of diabetes. I myself have diabetes and would think at that time I didn't know I had it. I would love to run back and, and <laughs> see about that. And uh, the other was a gentleman who said they had been dying for with of cancer. And they came and stayed at her place for months. And they said, I have been cancer-free for six years now. And I've never done any other interventions. So... You know, whether it's under the title of shaman or healing or something, something is going on here that's besides just eating the foods or something is happening. And in a beautiful place like that, I think there's a lot of healing that's coming from the nature of where you're also at. So that was her other place. And I have to add that because she had stayed at my house and we only had these two days, you know, I was in Mongolia for three weeks then. So we had two visits. We had this one where she took us to her shaman place. And then we had the one where she wanted to take us to do sort of a tourist or whatever, you you know, show you something special. Like I took her to the woods and I took her to the ocean. So she took me to a place where the presidents of the United States have stayed. Julia Roberts has stayed. The Dalai Lama has stayed. And she had me sit in the same chair that the Dalai Lama sat in, in this largest gear of all of Mongolia. The sad part for me there, and I had spoke to someone about it that worked there, is 
there are the the furs of 400 snow leopards all around that gear in between each like spoke of the of the wood and one of the gentlemen there said yes these were all caught right within this area that there used to be 4000 snow leopards i think that they're now an endangered species i'm not sure don't quote me on this um but even though I realized this was, that part sort of sanded me to see them all hanging there, but this was supposed to be some kind of a very special place. And um, we walked around this place and it really was an amazing, it was an amazing energetic place where this was. And I was very grateful that she took us to see, you know, the place where the, I guess, you know, where the president stays, you know, this is where these, I, those are not the places I'd been seeing anywhere on my trips to Mongolia. <laughs> so, so she was showing me the upper, the, the, the you know, the most famous uh, fancy gear. Well, it's fascinating to me that Puja is considered a healer, but I, I understand from our conversations, not a shaman. And you, for example, in our previous interviews, we know you've had many, many paranormal experiences, but until you received your initiation, you wouldn't have called yourself a shaman either, and other people wouldn't have called you a shaman. So there's a real difference between having psychic and spiritual gifts and being a shaman, certainly to the Mongolians. I wanted to give a, just a little kind of bit of history that I had from our Dr. Bat Bayar, the historian, because I found some things out yesterday that I thought was very fascinating, that 2,000 years ago, there were Mongolian shamans. Shamanism was the religion of Mongolia then. If you were going to be the governor of a province, you had to be a shaman to be the governor. This is 2,000 years ago. I think that's a very important thing to know. The jaw harp, when they were digging and excavating, which they do a lot of in Mongolia, and they find dinosaurs, and part of the high school requirement is you have to go out to the Gobi Desert excavating for bones. That's part of your school curriculum. They found a 2,000-year-old jaw harp, which I know I showed you once earlier in case this audience hasn't seen it. This is what a jaw harp looks like, and it's all made out of metal. It wasn't until the year 1400 that they started making these out of metal. They were all made out of bamboo back then, and I consider it the most important tool of my shamanic work is this particular tool. And when I speak to shamans about it, when I'm learning and they say you just learn by playing and the sounds will come to you my sounds are starting to change and so sometimes i get on with uh khanda who's a colic um uh shaman in mongolia who has stayed at my home and i play for her and she plays back for me and we learn from each other just by playing the jaw harp together so i'm able to expand my experience with this, even though they're far away because of the technology we have today. So this has been around forever. This is not a something that just was made up during the hippie days or, when, <laughs> you know, that's when we saw it in the hippie days, people were playing, you know, the jaw harps. So this was an ancient and important tool. And I'm not sure if all of the people know here that Genghis Khan was a shaman. And that was a very important part of his ways that he uh, learned and did things around was with shamanic 
tools and shamanic information. And they say there's this a story about him, which is what which is the origination of the number nine and why the number nine is the most important number in Mongolia. And the shamans use the number nine. They say there's 99 spirits. The horsehair fiddlers, when they play, which is an ancient instrument all made with the horsehair, they play, there's 999 fiddlers playing at one time. Not a thousand and not 998, but 999. When you do blessings with the milk, the vodka, um, you use nine. When you want to bless with milk, you take the milk and you put it on the tip of your finger and you're flinging it into the sky and it must be done nine times and you're, you're making your wish. Like it's used for a positive wish. When you open up a bottle of vodka for the first time, you never pour yourself that first glass. You give the heavens the first taste of the vodka. And it's always used with the ring finger and it's like this, you know, they're kind of sprinkling it like this in our last show, I'll give a little demo of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so vodka and milk are two very important things that are used by the shamans and also used by a Mongolian persons in their regular everyday. So I think like some of the things kind of infiltrated together. In fact, when we were talking about this yesterday, Bat Bayar was saying that and again, I apologize for not being able to pronounce these people correctly. The reason that the shaman is called a Boreat shaman, that's a correct pronunciation. The reason they're called a Kalach shaman or a Tuva shaman is because that is their ethnicity. They come from that area. So if you're a Boreat shaman, you come from the Boreat ethnic group. I did not understand this till yesterday. So that is where that, you know, I was initiated in the Boreat tradition. The Boreats are known to be the white shamans, more shamans of peace and healing. The Darkhat, Darkhat shaman are considered the most powerful and oldest shamans of the world. And they're the ones, I do have a photo, I think we might have shown it in the first show, I'm not sure, but I'll be happy to show it again, of the reindeer shamans. And the reindeer shamans, these, they live across from a place I had gone to to meet them, but we couldn't get there because there was a storm. They are considered the fiercest, can fight the darkness, can work in the dark, in the, you know, they're like the most powerful of those kind of shamans. And today are considered that they hold the most tradition. Where the other shamans, some of them, they call it sort of like a yellow shaman. It's where they've integrated Buddhism into also shamanism. So you will see Buddhism things involved in the shamanism. This khatag, this blue scarf that you see here, this blue scarf, this is used by, this is a Buddhist tradition to use these scarves to, um, uh, you know, bless or honor a place or this is what this is used for. But you'll know, I will notice that I see it tied on drums and there's things in the, you know, so there's been a kind of a blending in of some of these traditions in both things when we speak about them. So I wanted to mention about what the shamans had to go through because when communism took over from 1921 till 1991 and the communists ruled, 
no religious practices were permitted. And most of the temples were all destroyed in Mongolia. One of the temples that was kept, I have the name here for you, Gandan, Gandan, is the temple that you see in all the photos that's in downtown Mongolia. It's the only temple they did not destroy. And I have been there and it is a very powerful place to be in. And there's an amazing statue of Buddha in there that is massive. And um, it's, I guess, a copper covered in like a gold paint or something. Very, very unbelievable sight when you come come into it inside a building. Well, in 1991, they became free and they became a democracy. And they actually, even though it's not following the American tradition, the government there now changes every four years, just like we have a change here. But up until that time, the shamans were living in, in fear. And there was an era called the Black Era. And that was from 1936. Oh, it makes me almost start to cry till 1939, where they killed... 55,000 lamas and shamans in the country. And it's, you know, when I think about some of the the older men I met there, you know, some must remember, they, they remember these times, not necessarily 1939, but some of the men I met were 70 years old. So they were living through all of this era, hiding all of the shaman things that they can now do out in the public. But that was not, you know, they still kept their their practices, but they were, their life was threatened to keep that. So I just want the audience to be sure they know how what shamanism is there and what a powerful thing it was and how even when they tried to kill off every shaman they could find, it still prevailed. And the same thing with the Buddhism. They hid the tankas. They hid the things in mountains and under rocks, under the ground. And these things are now being brought out again. So when I went there in 2006, that hadn't been a long time since 1991. You know, 20 years or something, whatever it is. You know, it's not that long. So I really got to, to feel what it felt like that that whole era had been ending there. When I came in 2011, it was already like, I, that you didn't feel like you could touch that same kind of feeling. And, you know, you, there were shamans and things, you know, everything was public and there was a lot of Americanized and Western things and this sort of stuff and the, the malls and other that kind of things that was not there in 2006. So I wanted to be sure that they knew what these shamans did to keep up their beliefs and that just like in other countries where they try to wipe out a culture, these people still survived. Well, it's very interesting to me that the country has embraced shamanism so much. And in fact, your purpose for both of your visits in 2006 and 2011 was to attend conferences on shamanism. And at the same time, uh, during the communist regime there, I guess one would have to say it was outlawed. Beyond outlawed, it was death. <laughs> you know, you weren't going out there playing your drum, you would be killed. Uh, I, in fact, I want to bring up another thing. Oh, I love this because you, you stimulate the things I want to tell you. Um, I don't need notes. You're right. When I went there the second trip, it was also again Nadam, which I spoke about on our first show. 
because you go in July and that's when this is happening. So I had my whole family and this was something they could enjoy seeing, the reenactments of the games of Chinggis Khan. But this time Bakbayar had gotten us tickets, which you have to get a year ahead to be able to be inside the grounds where the ceremonies are being held in the capital. In the other places, you can get into them because it's small little towns. So I had not seen the huge Nadam the first trip like I saw in 2011. And the experience I got was unbelievable because Ayuna, the wife of my dear friend Bakbayar, grabs me out of the, the bleachers from my kids and my husband and, and Bakbayar, and she just rushes me onto the stage. And I think because at that time I had a Nikon camera with one of those hefty duty lenses that came out to here, the stage protectors thought I was like a news reporter person or something. So that's how they permitted me on there. And the next thing you knew, I was surrounded by shamans. I was on a stage opposite me. In front is a big, huge arena where all the parades and all the things are happening. On the other side, I'm facing the president of Mongolia. So the president of Mongolia and all the officials are all sitting in their very special box, which is exactly opposite the stage. And what are they doing? They're honoring their shamans at the festival. And the, each different uh, ethnic group picks what they consider their best or finest shaman of their, you know, group there. And they are set to represent them. So there I was on stage with, you know, a horde of shamans all there. And, and each one you could see what was sort of different about the other because it was everyone has like there's a certain amount of snakes that are hung by one particular group. Another one uses maybe 25 more. They, 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 there's something different about you can discern this if you're a shaman knowing, you know, they would, of course, be able to tell you which lineage these different people were. But I thought to myself, what festivals do we have where they honor shamans, you know, besides archers, you know, besides, you know, acts of sports and physical things, which is what this is all about, but they also honor these shamans. I was also very fortunate to have Ayuna watching me because besides the shamans, after they got off the stage and I'm still standing on the stage, a famous rock star came on and the crowds were going wild. And then after him, the wrestlers started parading on and I would have been trampled. There's no question about the way these wrestlers came rushing the stage. I think I would have just been flattened. <laughs> she grabbed me, pulled me off the stage just in time. The wrestlers came running on and I was able to have a once in a life experience of being on stage with Mongolian shamans from all the different cultures in one spot in one moment. And it was intense energy. It was very strong, powerful energy at that spot. So I just wanted to be sure I shared that. And we were discussing that. I was there taking my family to do this for this conference. But before I elaborate on the conference, I want to share one family outing with the um, listeners because it was an amazing experience. And you might not call it shamanic, but I think for me it was. And it was preceded by, I had an amazing dream the night that we had this experience. So, listeners, my son, who was 21 at the time, Richard, and my daughter, Tasha, was 15, 14 or 15 at the time. Oh, yeah, she must have been 15. 
I had my oldest daughter couldn't come. She was working. I had asked them to join on seeing their mom, give a talk in Mongolia and be with our Mongolian friends and family. And my son said, okay, I'm going to go, but there's only one thing I want to do when we get there. And I've got to say, this never occurred to me to want to do. He said, I want to see the killing of a sheep. <laughs> and I thought, what a weird thing that he's going to want to do. And I think to myself, who are we going to ask that's going to, you know, show us how to kill a sheep, right? Well, it turned out Bhatbhaiar's son, who is a monk, a Buddhist monk, and you're permitted to marry there as a Buddhist monk. Um, he had a girlfriend. I think her name was Suke or something. And Gure, Bhatbhaiar's son, who's the monk, said, oh, if that's what Richard wants, we can do that. And I said, how? And he said, well, my girlfriend's family are nomads and they are out in the steppe and we could go out there and we'll tell them ahead that we're going to be coming and we'll arrange for them to kill a sheep so Richard can watch it being done. So we're going out to what's called the Brown Steppe. And, you know, this is vast land and we're driving and driving. And when I had been there in 2006, the paved roads ended about 15 minutes after you left the capital and the rest is just dirt roads. Now in 2011, you could go almost 45 minutes out of the capital on paved roads. And then after that, you're left to these dirt roads or whatever you want to call them. And we're driving and we're driving and we're just swirling around in these mountain hills and, and in flat grassy lands and we don't we see other sheep farmers. So we have to keep asking, do you know where this particular group is? And my daughter, who's 15, is getting is be a, a, an impatient teenager and she's saying, I'm getting very tired of this, mom. I don't understand. What kind of girl doesn't know where her parents live? <laughs> So I had to explain to her that when you're a nomad, you don't have a permanent address. You pack up your entire gear, your yurt, all of your animals, your whole home, your little TV antenna thing, your, your solar panel, and you put it all in these trucks and away you go to the next place. And you move every certain amount of weeks, depending how long it takes for the sheep to eat up all the grass and be fed. So nobody would know where they are. And the only way you can find them is by asking other herders, have you seen this guy herding somewhere? So when she's about lost patience, we finally found them. But it was so late already that they had killed the sheep because we had said we'd be there at a certain time. So they killed the sheep and it was ready to, you know, they had cooked it all up ready for us to eat. And my son was so disappointed because that's what he wanted to see. They said, no problem, we'll kill another sheep. <laughs> the most gracious... Has, they, the most gracious hosts they are when you visit. So it was such a sight to see a little four-year-old boy on his horse, which is what your life is like if you're a nomad. You're at that age, you're riding a horse. You're not a little kid. You're herding sheep. So he's herding all the sheep in and we're watching him narrow them down. And then he gets off and he takes a rope and he walks up to one of the little sheep and he just puts a, a rope around the sheep and he walks it like you would take your dog on a leash and he brings it to the father. And the father looks at us and he said, this is how we'll kill, we'll kill the sheep now. He lays the sheep on the ground and every family member participates. The mother's holding the legs, the daughter's holding, getting something else. And I'm feeling like, oh my God, the sheep is gonna die. I better hold him. So I put the sheep in my lap. So I have the sheep's head in my lap 
and I'm stroking his head and looking into his eyes. And the father takes a little pen knife. I don't mean a big knife. I'm talking like a pocket knife size. And he makes a little eight inch incision down the belly of the sheep. I don't know. The sheep isn't squirming. He's not even freaking out in any way. I can't even believe this. And he sticks his hand up inside the sheep. And I'm not sure because of my translations, if it's the aorta or something, but he pinches something in the heart area that as I'm holding the sheep's head, I'm watching the spirit of the animal leave in the breath as he's dying. And it is such a profound and beautiful experience. That's why I feel it's also shamanic because we're dealing with animal and death. And there is no pain or stress or any of the things like we think about in America in a slaughterhouse where an animal is slaughtered in fear and then you're eating that meat that's been filled with fear. This animal was chewing up his grass and in minutes after I watched the spirit leave the breath and I was crying, tears were going down my face, but it wasn't like a sadness. It was like a cycle of life thing, but it was the touchingness of this. And then in minutes, the entire sheep was cut up and every single piece of the sheep was used. There was no wastage. And they wanted us to see the stomach of the sheep, which that pouch would then be used to carry water or something else later, was filled with the fresh grass that he was just chewing so that everything in him was still like alive. And each thing, the feet would be used for something, the head would be used for something, the, the skin, everything was used. And then again, in minutes, it was all chopped up, thrown into a big stainless steel bowl, put on the wood fire, which had been outside at that time, and they put in potatoes, onions, carrots, and the chopped up sheep. And an hour or so later, this delicious meal was presented to us. And we ate the animal who I had held in my lap. And I can't tell you how moving an experience that was, but it affected me because that night I had a dream. And I think the dream, maybe, I'm not sure what it meant, but I'm thinking now maybe it was something to explain that it was all okay what we had done. In the dream, a deer comes up to me. And just like the sheep, I'm stroking and petting the deer. And the deer is just smiling at me. And we're having this lovely connection together. And it's just a filled, beautiful dream. So even though that's not necessarily shamanic, for me, it was a very, I think it was part of my future initiations in being to this close to be with an animal holding them while they died. And as I recall, Gail, you had more dreams that night. I had dreams about going into the, which I was going to say about, in the, you know, things that the in the conference, there were shamans, which we'll talk about in a second. But one of the things that they speak about and also that Michael Harner speaks about and that you can see is part of a similarity in all different. I always like to look at the culture of the Weechol shaman compared to the Mongolian shaman, because those are the two I know most about and most intimately, where Native Americans have not accepted me into their culture. They have not shown me or shared these things. So I can't speak about their what their types of culture and things would be, because I think it's kept more secret. 
and you're not really allowed in quite as easily like these people took me in. In the shamanisms of all these cultures is the upper world, the middle world, and the lower world. And they all speak of these same three worlds. I find that fascinating. In Mongolia, Tenga is the sky, and that's blue. That's why blue is the most important color for the Mongolian people. And it's a color also of healing. It's the sky. It's the heavens. They believe that Chinggis Khan came from the heavens. He was a heavenly being. They believe that even though there are shamans around the world that practice different ways of their treatments or whatever, their ceremonies, they believe that all of those shamans all still connect to the same source of the heavens. And that in that world, all the languages are one. And your dreams, you had other dreams. In that, that next day after that, I had a dream where I was going to the lower world. And I was very scared because I was just talking to you about the heavens. That world, I'm happy to go jumping around in. Then there's the middle world, which is the world of the physical body and like the everyday world, the middle world. And then there's the lower world, which is the underworld, the underground, the, 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 the darkness, the, the place where there may be the negative energies, etc. That lower world scares me, but it's where shamans have to go to do some of their work. So in the dream, I'm in the lower world and I can't get out. And I'm just so scared in the dream that can someone hear me? Help, help. I want to get out of the lower world. So that was another dream. I, when I'm in Mongolia, I have a lot of psychic, uh, my psychic self, or I don't know what the word is, becomes much sharper. And I know things the day before I see things happening and it's just like an everyday occurrence instead of more of like, Oh, that just happened. It's like every day for me there. And, um, the name of the conference, here's our little badge. We even had, we had official badges just like, so this is not like shamans are just sort of meeting. These were people that came from Russia, Poland, Korea, all Mongolians, the United States, they all came for this conference called the, which rightly so, the International Shamanic Scientific Conference, the Spirits of Ancestors in the Sound of the Drum. This was a very good title because we were sharing with these people from other cultures who some of them had not known anything about Mongolian shamanism, but they were bringing videos and things to share about what's going on in Poland, what's going on in Russia, what's happening in Siberia. So we got to hear, you know, important things like I didn't know that the Siberian shamans, their year begins on June 21st, not January 1st or in other cultures, in the Jewish culture is another date. In their culture, it's the summer solstice. That's when the year begins. Not in the different month, but on June 21st. That's a Siberian way. The um, Polish people shared amazing tools and things they'd found in the grounds, in burial sites. And so we were really getting exposed to other people's cultures in the same place, in this one little gear, in this conference. 
I know that some of the things they said, I tried to write down what they were saying because the translator, you have to remember, we had a translator for a lot of these people. So it was their interpretation that we were hearing. So that's why I'm never sure some of the time if it's exactly accurate of what they said. Um, but they talked about um, stones and how stones are one of the most important things in, in the shamanic culture in Mongolia and in many other cultures. And the most important stone to a Mongolian shaman is if you can get a stone from central middle Mongolia that comes from an, a volcanic eruption. Those are the most powerful stones and stones are used for healing. And one of the types of forms it would be used for healing is a stone would be put into a pot of boiling water you would, whatever the shaman did to the water and the rock or whatever he did, then the client or the patient would then drink that water to get the healing property from that stone. So I learned certain things that, you know, I wouldn't be able to necessarily learn. You know, I don't pick the brains of a shaman. I just go with whatever experience we're having when we're together. But at a conference, this was a place to discuss what is this and why does that mean, you know, and ask questions and get answers to these things. So it, I don't know, besides um, Ruth Inga Hines's, I was just blown away to be at a conference with shamans from other places in a country like Mongolia. Well, it is sort of unique in a sense that shamans would come together in, in a sort of quasi-academic forum. Do we have time for me to speak about the three shamans who presented there? There's the the the, the shaman Dr. Lag Lagwaja, and then there's also Dr. Lagva. I'm going to speak about Dr. Lagva in my last sentence when you tell me that it's the end. But I'm going to speak about Dr. Lagwaja uh, right now. He is considered okay. one of the most powerful shamans in Mongolia. He has stayed here at my home, but this is where I first met him, inside this gear. I was sitting next to him, and I did not know what he was going to do or who he was. And he did a, what happened was, this was late at night, and there were three shamans there to do ceremony. My husband fell asleep. My children went to sleep. It was me and the rest of the guests that could stay awake because it was like midnight, one o'clock in the morning while this was going on. In his ceremony, what he was doing was he was blowing, not blowing, but breathing or spitting out amounts of vodka into a giant a fire that was in a you know a wood box. I mean, not a wood box, but in a fire box inside the gear. And he would spray in the vodka and then the fire flames would come shooting out into the room and lay, you know, dancing shadows around the, the inside of the gear. And he did a whole singing and jaw harping and only to this fire. And he was working with the God of fire. And what we had to do was we had to watch as he did this. And then we each individually had to go up to him and he would take his drum and hit you in the face with the drum. Well, it was kind of head and face like this, except that I have a pointy nose. So it was kind of getting away in the way there. I don't have a Mongolian flat Asian nose. And it was a bit on the painful side. It brought tears to my eyes when he did it. But it's to rid you of negative energy. And so you were hit like this three times very hard. And you were given a piece of fat. 
And at the end, after you'd been hit by the 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 drum and rid, gotten rid of your negative energy, you would take the piece of fat and you threw it into the fire as a gesture to feed the fire food. So you were feeding the god of fire. I thought this to be a fascinating ceremony. And the next ceremony we had in there was by a woman, <laughs> very hard to say her name, so I'm just going to call her Miss S right now. And she was from the Kalkach, where um, uh, the first gentleman was from the Dach, Dachkach grouper. <laughs> She's from the Kalkach, and or maybe he was Kalkach too. And she, one of the things that a shaman does, and there I've seen in every shaman, is they take on the spirit of the animal or person that they work with to do their shamanic work. So right before you eyes, you watch this woman in this one o'clock in the morning kind of lighting turn into a wolf. And when I say she turned into a wolf, I'm telling you the sounds, the body, the motions, she was a wolf. There was no question in my mind. And there was a point when these shamans are working, people should know they're not just there by themselves doing this and running around. They have one to three people that are watching them to make sure that they don't fall, that they don't burn, that they don't get hurt because they are in an altered state at that point. And they're not involved with the middle world. They're working either with the lower worlds or the upper world. So they're not with the body. They don't have to, they're not going to look for these things. So they have to be watched to make sure that everything is going okay and that no one is going to get hurt. Well, in front of me, because I was sitting right in the front of, right by this woman, when she got into the wolf thing, she wasn't coming back. And they were getting scared. And there were ways that you have to bring the, the, the shaman back from her wolf-like state. She needed to be brought back into an earthly body. And so all of a sudden, we thought everything was going smooth and wonderful. And then you could feel that there was like a little scariness there, like, uh-oh. And what they did was the, the assistants came in right away and someone lit a very long pipe and they blew smoke on her and they put the pipe in her mouth for her to take some smoke from the pipe. And then they did some other things on her body. And all of a sudden you could see her sort of like the, the, the wolf was leaving and she was starting to come back. But that's how intense that going into the other spirit is and that it can be that a person can get lost and not find their way back. So there are these people there to watch and protect you. And the same thing when you're dancing and drumming and this with your eyes closed, you don't want to accidentally brush by a fire or some other thing like that. So they're making sure that your things that are flying around, you know, they'll tuck it in. The other thing I want to say about this that I find is very important, and then I'll get to Zagda, the last shaman there, is that these shamans, the shaman, uh, the, the healer Pujay, when we were at her place, she had her three-year-old granddaughter with her. And while she was doing her healing, she held the do daughter in her arms, gave her a bracelet and had the daughter, the granddaughter, touching the head of each person she was healing with this neck, with this bracelet. So she was, I felt like I was watching a shaman, in, a healer in training at three and four years old. Well, it was the same at this conference where when the shamans were there, the third shaman was Zagda, a Buryat shaman. And it was the first time I was going to meet her.
she brings her granddaughter. I think to myself, who brings a granddaughter that's three or four years old to watch all this shamanism stuff at two o'clock in the morning, right? Why would you do this? But because in that culture, the children aren't left out. Children are all part of everything that's going on. They're not kept separated no matter what the ceremony is going to be. And her ceremony was pretty intense. So before I get to her ceremony, I want to say that for whatever reason, the granddaughter took a liking to me. And so we were trying to, you know, whatever together. And I gave her my camera and she was using, clicking it and enjoying it. And then as it got later on into the night and we were going into the next ceremony, her little granddaughter just went up into my lap and curled up and went to sleep. Well, I'm only telling you that story because it was one of the reasons that this woman Zagda, I will tell you about, became the person who initiated me as a shaman here in Sebastopol, California. So this is all these things that are going up. We can look back now and retrospectively say, oh, this is what happened. This was. But I didn't see then that all these things were leading up to this shamanic initiation I was going to have. So one of the lovely young translators who we called Kim Chi, she said, Gail, when a child calls and crawls up into your lap in Mongolia, we consider that you're a very special person, that there's something very special about that. Well, I didn't know how much that really meant until later, but her grandma starts doing her ceremony and grandma Zagda, her ceremony, and this woman is substantial and she's got a power about her and she scares you where, you know, there's the kind where you feel like it's sort of a kinder shaman. This is like your tough shaman. She's beating you up, you know, <laughs> she's not taking any no's for an answer. So she tells each person in this group. And this is where the where 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 the people who signed up for the conference. But at the same time, locals arrived at midnight and 11 p.m. to partake in the ceremony when they heard there were shamans doing this. They were not at the conference, but they wanted to be there for all the shamanic ceremonies. So the local people are just as much interested as someone from Poland and Russia to be there and to be blessed and to be part of the ceremony. So. Zagda's thing, he hit us on the head with the drums. That was how he got rid of the negative energy. Hers was whipping. And she had all these whips, like, you know, tied to her side. She had a whip here and a whip here. And she had all her different large daggers and very huge. Everything she had was really big. And she whipped some of the people that I knew that I had met there in the conference that were from the United States it was sort of a gentle kind of a whip. And when she whipped me, she whipped me from my head to my toes. And it was a gentle whip. And I was, you know, but I was scared at first, but I still felt strange being whipped. But she then whipped Kevin Turner, who was Michael Harner's, you know, he was one of the teachers. He's the head of Asian shamanic studies of all Asia for the Michael Harner uh, organization. And he, she whipped so hard. I mean, they had their clothes on, but she whipped so hard. And I was, you know, eight inches away from this. And I was filming him being whipped. And I was like freaking out you know, <laughs> watching this cracking of the whip. And I saw him again a year later at a Michael Harner um, uh, yearly council event. And he said to me, I had a terrible back pain that I'd suffered from for years. And since she whipped me, and he specifically told her he had a back issue, 
He said, it has been a year now and I have not had that back pain return. So I'm just saying this is I'm, I'm trying to validate what they're doing by sharing these stories with you. It sounds wild and crazy, but there were results. So. I did not know that some months later, this woman Zagda was going to be sleeping in the bedroom in my house. This was the only time I met her was this whipping ceremony thing. And I didn't see her again until she arrived at my doorstep, which will be part of our three talk on how she initiates me as a shaman. But it was from things she saw in that ceremony that day and the reaction of her granddaughter to me. These are things that planted seeds in her mind about what she was going to do with me, I think, in the future. I mentioned in our other talk how I'm not sure why, but just before you're always going to the airport, the night before you're leaving in Mongolia, a courier arrives and brings you something. I mentioned how um, in the first one they um, there was they had brought um, the beautiful silk brocade Dell, which ended up becoming my shaman clothing. Who knew that? On the second one, two things came by courier. One was a huge family portrait of the Batbayars family and my family taken at a professional studio, which we'll show you a photo of. And it is us all dressed in the days of Genghis Khan's kind of clothing. So we're all dressed as Mongolians from the old days. And it's a treasure that's over my fireplace that means the world to me. And just the fact that we could merge, merge our two American families and our Mongolian families together as one in a photo. Well, the other item that came that day, and you know, this is always like a crazy hour, like 11 o'clock at night, someone knocks at your door and we go to the door and we're leaving at, you know, eight in the morning, right? And a man comes and he says, Dr. Lagva, not the other doctor, but Dr. Lagva, who is a physicist and a award winner of the Einstein Award. And he's we've he's come to my house and then I went to his home in Mongolia and I got to see all the awards on his walls. And he's an inspirational, energetic, brilliant, very special being that at 80 something seemed like the energy of a 50 year old. He said, I was very busy. I'm a very busy man, so I couldn't come to say goodbye to you, but I wanted you to have this gift. And this gift was a fox, a Mongolian fox, you know, not live, a dead skin. And it had been hanging in his house for 14 years that was caught by a friend of his and given to him as a gift. And when he gave me this fox, I did not know then that that fox was going to end up being the back part of my Mongolian clothing because Mongolian shamans all have foxes hanging from them and fox hats. And there are a lot of things done with the fox. Well, he said something to me and I, I, I'm just sharing it with you. I'm not, it's not a braggy kind of thing. And I didn't know then what he meant because I didn't know what was going to happen in the future. But he said, I want you to have this fox I don't know if you will be able to get it through customs. I don't know if you're allowed to take it into America. He said, but I'm going to hope you'll be able to get it in because I believe that you are a shaman from the Chinggis Khan lineage. And I've seen so much of you as a real, real shaman. 
And I then still thought, what a nice compliment, but I didn't, you know. <laughs> Anyways, those items were then put on my shamanic clothing, and I adore that fox. Customs did not see it. Nothing was confiscated, and I was able to bring that fox back home to my house. And I will be able to share all these items in our next show I'm going to wear my Mongolian clothing and I'm going to explain what all the different things that she put on and had us make and what they were, what they mean and what the ceremony was like. And I'm hoping that your listeners will be interested. I'm hoping they enjoyed today's show and I hope they know that I have a, a zillion more Mongolian stories, but it's just too hard to get them all in in 55 minutes. <laughs> Well, Gail Hazen, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm sure our viewers and our listeners are thrilled to hear your stories. And of course, they can go to your podcast, Small Medium at Large, and hear many more if they like. Uh, but I want to uh, thank you so much for being with me today. And of course, I'm very gratified to know that we're going to do at least three more interviews. I hope that doesn't end. We still have a lifetime to go. <laughs> Thank you so much and have a very, very wonderful week, Jeffrey. And for those of you listening and watching, thank you as well for being with us. Mm -hmm.